My name is Thomas Malchow. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. I've worked with hundreds of Olympic and professional athletes. I can help you become better at golf. All right. Hello, everyone. This is Thomas Malchow from trainfully.com, and you are listening to the Trainfully podcast, the show dedicated to enhancing your golf performance. Now, if you like our podcast and you find it's helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel. The handle is at trainfully. And give me a follow on Instagram. The handle is at Elastic Golfer. All right. Now, in this episode, we have Dr. Brett McCabe joining us. Brett is a world-renowned clinical and sports psychologist and the founder of The Mindside, which is his performance consulting organization in Birmingham, Alabama. He's worked with some of the best golfers in the world, including players on the PGA Tour, the LPGA Tour, and the Corn Ferry Tour. And of course, his work focuses on the psychological side of the game, right? Helping golfers develop the mental skill to win. And so if you've heard him speak before, this is probably what you've heard him talk about. And he always does such a great job simplifying complex neuroscience while giving us actionable steps that we can actually use right away to improve our game. He's such a great communicator. Well, recently, I was fortunate enough to see Brett give a presentation on a topic that was a little bit different from his regular content. He recently gave a presentation to a group of us who work in sports medicine that was about injury and pain, specifically how personality traits and life stressors can actually predict injury and pain. Right. And this is a really important topic. And what he said really echoed a lot of the research that has come out in recent years, looking into shoulder pain, knee pain, and low back pain. Right. According to the research, not only can we predict who's more likely to become injured, again, based on personality traits and life stressors, but we can also predict who's more likely to have a better recovery. So if you've been struggling with a chronic injury, or you work with golfers who at obviously some point going to become injured, then this is an important topic for you, because we're going to outline the importance of taking more of a biopsychosocial approach to understanding health. Right? So think about this. How does an injury happen? Well, an injury usually happens because tissues or structures have been overloaded, right? And we traditionally think of that overload as occurring in the physical domain, right? The biological domain. But the research is showing us that overload can occur in the psychological and social domains as well. So let's take a look at the shoulder pain studies because they're really interesting. We know that our rehab protocols for treating shoulder pain are really effective. And that's because most studies show an 80% improvement. So that means most people who have shoulder pain get back to doing everything that they want to do with minimal symptoms, as long as they're following the right rehab protocol. So that's really good news. The bad news is follow-up studies find that 
despite that initial good response, 40 to 50% of those people will have some sort of recurrence or ongoing symptoms. So what's going on here? What's causing this high rate of recurrence? Well, studies looked into that and they found that lifestyle factors are the deal breaker when it comes to recovery. So things like sleep quality, nutrition, stress management, smoking, alcohol consumption, and social support all play a really important role in recovery. In fact, some of the shoulder pain studies found that sleep disturbances are more highly correlated with outcomes than strength and mobility. Right? Think about that for a moment. According to these studies, sleep might be more important to shoulder pain recovery than strength and mobility. There's also a lot of evidence suggesting that if you're a smoker or were a smoker in the past, then it's more difficult for you to recover from rotator cuff injuries. And all that makes sense, right? If you're not sleeping well, then you're not recovering well. And of course, it will be more difficult to recover from injuries. And we know that smoking causes a lot of metabolic inflammation, which is bad for your tissue health. And obviously, that's going to make it more difficult to recover from injuries. So all that makes sense. What about this? Studies, again, looking into shoulder pain, found that loneliness results in people being more sensitive to pain. So that means when we feel lonely, we have a lower threshold for pain. And it's more difficult then for us to recover from injuries. So having good social support also plays a really important role in recovering from injuries. So if you've been having a hard time recovering from an injury, I want you to reflect on these other factors. Do you have good social support? Are you feeling lonely? Are you getting good sleep quality? What's your nutrition like? Are you managing stress well? Do you smoke or drink excessive alcohol? Because these lifestyle factors are the elephant in the room when it comes to rehab outcomes, right? So that means you could be following the best rehab and, and following the protocols very diligently, but these other factors could be holding you back. So that's what we mean when we say it's important to take more of a biopsychosocial approach to understanding health. It's not just all about biology. There's a psychological and social component to it as well. And it highlights the importance of social interaction and social support. And that was really one of my main objectives with the Train Fully Inner Circle. The inner circle gives us an opportunity to connect, right? So if you've been dealing with any sort of chronic injury or injuries, I can show you the correct exercise prescription for treating it and give you guidance and support along the way. And if you're already a member of my inner circle, this is something that I want you to take full advantage of. And here's an example of how to do that. One of the inner circle members recently underwent hip replacement surgery. And of course, I'm managing his rehab. Every week, he and I connect by Zoom to discuss his rehab. He tells me how he's feeling. And then based on how he's feeling and how he's moving and presenting, I can then give him specific progressions for his exercises, or in some cases, regressions, because there's always going to be setbacks, right? Rehab never goes perfectly. So 
our weekly meeting is really important because it allows me to give him the correct exercise prescription at the right dosage from week to week so that he makes steady, continuous progress. And because he's making continuous progress, he's increasing his self-efficacy and his self-confidence, both of which are really important for recovery, right? But the meetings also give him an opportunity to tell me how he's feeling. And I've been working in sports medicine now for two and a half decades, so I've seen it all. And I can give him assurance that what he's feeling and what he's going through is normal. And that's also really important because it improves his emotional well-being and his psychological well-being. So our aim with the rehab is to improve his physical or biological well-being, his social well-being, his emotional well-being, and his psychological well-being, right? It's that biopsychosocial approach to understanding health that is so important. So if you've been dealing with injuries, and this sounds like something that could help you, or you're looking for a social network of like-minded people who love golf and who want to take their game and their health to the next level, head over to trainfully.com and join my inner circle. I want to help you become the best version of yourself. Also, check out Brett's website, brettmccabe.com, and give him a follow on social media. His handle is at Dr. Brett McCabe. Now enjoy the episode and feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. All right. So joining us today is world-renowned clinical and sports psychologist, Dr. Brett McCabe. Brett, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I don't know about that world-renowned stuff. Uh, I don't even know if I'm world renowned in my own household. So, you know, I just try to show up and do my job, but thank you. Well, let's see here. You've been on a ton of podcasts. You've written at least four books that I know of. You've provided content for ESPN, Golf Magazine, the Golf Channel. So I think a lot of the people listening probably already know who you are, but for those who don't, can you introduce yourself and, and tell us why you got into sports performance and golf performance? Yeah. So, um, I was not a psych guy at all. Like I did not, the whole psychology thing was just not interesting to me for a long time. Um, but I was playing ball at LSU and I struggled and I struggled with an injury. I'd finally broken through. I'd finally reached that moment of that, you know, confidence that happens in, with athletes. And then all of a sudden in an overnight situation, I lost it. And I lost it because I had some shoulder injuries and some shoulder pain. I, I don't know if I'll call it an injury. I just had some shoulder discomfort. I remember leading up to a week that I was going to pitch. Um, I had some pinching in my shoulder and I just, yeah, it's whatever, you know, one more outing and then I'll shut it down for the fall. Um, and I pitched beautifully. I mean, I just, I, I, it was, it was one of those days of like, you had the best day and then all of a sudden it's gone. The next morning I woke up and I just, re I, I couldn't get my shoulder to move. And, um, I remember the pain was pretty intense and, you know, I go to the doctor and this was back in the early nineties and they shot it up with some cortisone and said, look, let's just rest it for six weeks. Don't do anything above your head. And I did that and took the anti-inflammatories and I came back in January. It still was there. And what happened was I, I didn't want to identify, I didn't want to let coach know that I was hurting. 
So I tried to pitch through it in my own way, but the pitching through it didn't work. And my mechanics were terrible because I was bracing against it. And, um, and, and I really struggled that year. I struggled. I lost my velocity. I lost my mechanics. I lost a lot of stuff, but what got me into psychology was the next year. I, I, at that point I was kind of on skid row, um, and just turned towards psychology to understand how to perform with what I did have. Ended up having great success my last two seasons, nowhere near the same velocity or power. And that kind of turned me into psychology. I was like, you know what, if I could succeed with really cruddy abilities, but I also did not handle the injury very well. I was scared. I was protective. I was really caught up in the past, anchoring into that past mentality. And it just started me down a path. And I was fortunate enough to be in some settings in grad school where I got a lot of exposure in physical medicine and rehabilitative and chronic pain settings. Uh, did that for five years and then went to Brown up in Rhode Island, where I was fortunate enough to work in those settings some more. Um, and then it just kind of over 10 years, 15 years of working in pharma, eight years of pharma, um, doing research and development. I just started working with clients on the side. Next thing you know, is here I am. And uh, I love what I do. I, I love the... I, I, getting people to like a zone state. A lot of people in my field teach that that doesn't interest me because that kind of see it kind of happen naturally. Um, I'm really good or I'm really comfortable when people are struggling or hurting or trying to come back from something. And I just feel like I can shine a light a little bit to help them get through that. And I don't know if it's cause I've been there. I don't know if it's cause I can just see through it a little bit. Um, but that's tend to be when people call me or text me, I rarely get the, Hey, I just want a major and I want to work. I've had that happen. And it's kind of a very, um, I'm much more comfortable when somebody's saying, Hey, I'm about to lose my card. What do we do? But right. Go from there. So, I mean, I I've been following your work for, for a number of years, but recently I saw you, uh, give a presentation on Kevin Wilkes grand rounds. Now for mm -hmm. the people listening who don't know, Kevin, Kevin is um, uh, a sports physical therapist and researcher, very well known in the field. And he holds these grand rounds where he, he invites other researchers and, and other experts in the field to come on, give a presentation. We get to learn about their work and how we can apply their work to our demographic to improve outcomes. And uh, Brett, you gave just an outstanding presentation about strategies to help motivate athletes when they're injured. And it highlighted to me uh, a lot of the challenges people face when they're injured and how important it is for us to take more of like a, a biopsychosocial approach to understanding health. And as a kinesiologist, when I'm working with somebody, I'm primarily looking at their movement, right? I'm looking at their biomechanics and I'm looking for any compensations that I can see that might increase their risk for injury, Right. But there's more to biomechanics or more to injury and pain than just biomechanics. Can you explain how personality traits and life stressors can also be a risk factor for injury? Sure. So there was some, you know, and, and when I say, when I kind of lead into some of the research, I'm going to tell you the research is pretty scant. And, and it's an unfortunate thing because one of the things I have found um, in the sports world is not a lot of people want to open up their coffers to the distinct advantages, unless you have a research arm associated with the athletic department. Uh, they're going to kind of keep things kind of on the down low a little bit. Um, but there was a research study that was done back in the 80s. I'm not going to say it was the most rigorous study, but it's going to start it, um, where they looked at and assessed stress. Now, I was my professor in grad school was a, it was a stress and, and medical 
um, expert. So the impact of psychosocial stress on people's medical functioning. We know in the world of stress that people who suffer from two types of stress, major and minor, let me describe the two, major, loss of a loved one, change of a job, a move, a new baby, something like that. Those are major significant impacts. And we used to think that those were the really impactors. But what we have found is that the minor stresses, the daily hassles have the same cumulative effect as major stressors. It's like the tidal wave versus the undercurrent that under, uh, you know, erodes underneath the, the foundation. Well, we know that people who are suffering from minor life stress consistently and repetitively have worse outcomes medically, diabetes, arthritis, cardiovascular disease, obesity, smoking, all that, okay? Some of it's our coping, some of it's the effect on the physiological system. But when you look at somebody who's injured, what they did is they studied and they said, okay, does stress impact injury recovery? Sure. You could look at it from a tissue standpoint. You could look at it from a healing standpoint, adherence standpoint. Stressed individuals don't tend to show up in time for their appointments. They tend to run behind. They have too many competing demands when they're actually in therapy. They're not putting in the same effort and the same intensity. Okay, we know that. But what they did is they monitored football players and they said, does stress predict injury? And what they found was that it does. Now, there's some reasons for that. When you take a look at the biopsychosocial model, what we're describing is the complex psychophysiological state of a human being. And so you're looking at everything from movement patterns to visual fields, to reaction time, to flexibility, to pliability, all those other factors, right? As well as the ability to push through minor hassles. And we know from research that one minor injury is a bigger predictor of a future injury. So people tend to overcompensate and they struggle. Well, that stress actually predicted among football players, those who had the highest levels of stress were at an increased risk of injury during the course of a season. And then you add in the fact that they don't recover as well. So I always found that was interesting because to me, if you've got an athlete who's stressed and you take an athlete whose identity, let's just take athletes in general here. You take an athlete whose identity is wrapped around their physical capabilities on the playing field, on the surface, whatever it is. And you remove them from that environment where they have typically coped. If you ask any athlete, when you're under stress with your sport, what do you do? The answer is usually practice harder, train more, do more. Now, all of a sudden we take them out of the environment. They can't do that. They don't have necessarily all the tools to do that. Okay. And so what happens is the team leaves them. They go travel. They come back. They have their inside. They're watching their teammates either struggle or somebody's replacing them and doing extraordinarily well. So let's take a look at the time of this recording. We're talking about, um, you know, you, you got to look at the San Francisco 49ers with Brock Purdy, who's the backup, backup quarterback, uh, Mr. Irrelevant in the NFL, um, last pick in the draft. And all of a sudden now he's got this buzz. He just took down Tom Brady, looked like a freaking pro bowler. You look at that and you say, okay, well, Trey Lance is out for the year. Jimmy Garoppolo may be out for the year. They want to see him do well. But if you start thinking from an athletic standpoint, it's like contract renewals and values. Does San Francisco look at that and say, man, we don't really need a uh, premier quarterback. We can run on a rookie contract for five years. What does that do to Trey Lance's recovery? Feeling valued and trusted. And those are all components. And so the biopsychosocial approach as a psychologist, the way we look at it is what are those biological um, inf uh, influences? You know, family history, their medical history, um, their injury history kind of how they, you know, how do they respond to stress, you know, physiologically. Then we look at the psychological, what are their motivations, their coping mechanisms, their buffers, 
what kind of belief systems do they have? Like, you know, if you're an athlete and you believe that um, you should never lose your job due to injury, and the next thing you know, you've lost your job due to injury, that can be a very big trust breakdown. Um, and then you look at the social side. Who are the influences? What are the pressures? Are they in a first year, last year contract? Are they on a draft? I mean, if you've got a kid in the NFL who's in college and is in his third year in football, that's a draft year. Okay, now they got a minor hassle that's causing them to not perform at their best. That adds pressure, particularly if a whole family is dependent upon their income. Um, and so you start looking at all those factors and we wonder why somebody is struggling, right? Well, athletes, unfortunately, psychologically, when they're not at their best, they often struggle because they're used to playing like a race car that's got everything primed. How good can they be when they're not at that level? And so those are the factors that we start trying to turn it. So knowing that it in stress increases their risk, but also um, impairs their ability to heal and recover from a biological, a sociological, a psychological, and then knowing what to do with them, those are all the things that we get involved with. And, and I've been fortunate enough to get on my soapbox enough to know and to yell and scream enough that now orthopedic surgeons, the minute somebody, let's say in Tuscaloosa, University of Alabama has an injury, I'm involved. They're not waiting for the house to burn down. And I'm not saying, oh, one of the Andrews docs, hey, look, I can improve your surgical performance, but I can tell you we can get a player back sooner. 100% we can. And, you know, in a healthier manner. That, you know, one of the things that's interesting is when we see somebody's injured and, and or we know that they're in pain, I think we can all appreciate and we all understand that the pain is having a negative impact on their quality of life, right? The interesting thing is studies looking into shoulder pain found that when somebody has shoulder pain, they often feel like the people around them underestimate the impact the pain is having on their life. Why is that? Why is when, you know, when we're in pain or we're injured, we feel like other people don't really understand what we're going through. So pain is a subjective experience that doesn't have a consistent rating scale amongst people. Okay. So you, what you hear a lot of times is, well, why is this pain? Why is headache? Okay. Why is somebody's headache or their lower back pain debilitating, but somebody who's had a broken leg, a compound fracture is not. Um, and so I think the, what we try to do is we try to quantify pain and uh, I think historically, we know that the best measure is just a visual analog scale of rating to one to 10. I like to do one to a hundred to give me more variety um, because an eight and a nine are different than a 78 and a 93, right? right. There's a pretty big difference. Um, and so, you know, when I, when I look at that and somebody says they have shoulder pain, the, the things that I would look at a shoulder is, you know, how many things are you utilizing that rely on the shoulder? How many things, you know, your sleep quality is definitely impacted with shoulder pain. Um, and it's hard to quantify. And so I think what we do is we anchor against what we know is usually our own experience. And then we anchor it against people that we've treated. And you look at, you know, you look at more serious situations and think, well, this person didn't struggle with that. So there's sometimes that little bit of apprehension or maybe the lens of which that's being viewed by the people around them is somewhat judgmental or perceived that way. Right. That could be difficult. Um, so those are the things that I kind of look at and, and, and that's why I always tell my athlete or my trainers, my athletic trainers or my physios or, or whatever is like, don't ever try to anchor somebody's own pain experience, have them describe it to you in a way that is with regards to their function. Where do they feel that they are at compared to where they believe they should be or where they want to be put it into their own terms. Then we can see it. Um, I've never, 
minus some patients who have have had some conversion-based disorders where, you know, where they're manifesting something or, um, you know, even somebody who's very, very much of a somaticizer, you know, very somatically focused. I've very rarely seen people manifest pain that's not there. Yeah. And, and, and I know that we want to try to bring in psychological pain into a physical situation. The way I look at it is it's like the volume on your surround sound. If there's 10 people in the room and they're all yelling at you, you want to turn up the noise. And what happens is the noise becomes unbearable. But our job is to quiet the noise of the things that we can control. And so if somebody's under a lot of distress, the noise in the room could be a lot louder, which forces everything to go up. Pain is going to compete. It's going to compete against every demand they have. So it's not the fact that we're going to say, oh, we're going to calm you down and relax you and your pain's going to go away. But sometimes what happens is our sensitivity to it improves and our ability to manage it and devote our energies to it help us a little bit. Yeah. And that's something, you know, that's interesting. You're talking about uh, people, how they, I feel like they often want to share what, what they're going through. And, and that's something that I've learned over the years with the assessments that I do. They used to just be all pretty much, I mean, there'd be a subjective part of it where I would get the history and all that, but I'd really focus on, on like the measurements. And mm-hmm. over the years, I've realized that it's probably more important to just let the person tell you how they feel. And sometimes just going through the assessment and them getting the feeling that you really understand them can start to um, already improve, you know, their, their situation a little bit. Um, obviously, nobody wants to be in pain. Everybody wants to feel better. But, you know, recovery depends on adhering to rehab programs. And that's another thing that can be challenging for people. Why is it hard for people to adhere to rehab programs? <laughs> So, so my dissertation was on adherence and it was on adherence to a diabetes program. And I worked in a charity system in Louisiana where the average income was $600 a month for an entire household. So we're talking low income, um, average reading levels around a fifth grade reading level. Right. And you got to think the practitioners and providers are highly educated individuals who can speak circles around them. So sometimes there's a, um, there's a barrier that gets in the way of, of comprehension and understanding the severity of why it's important. So what we did in this study was I came on the back end of it, but our endocrinologist was able to provide at the time metformin, which was a branded drug by Bristol Myers Squibb back in the day for free for patients for at least two years. And it was this thought process that it would increase adherence. And there's a difference between adherence and compliance. Compliance is the authoritative way. If you do this, you follow through. Um, and I'm the expert, you do what I'm telling you to do. And adherence is much more of a partnership. But what we found was that giving away free medicine did not improve adherence rates one bit, not 1% over a two-year period. Despite the fact that patients said historically and why, it was too expensive. And so my study was to look at exactly what those barriers really were. And what we found was, once again, patients said it was too expensive to take their medicine, despite the fact that it was too expensive. And so it falls into what we call a health beliefs model where the health beliefs has to be your decision to cons- to do something new. And we say a pill costs nothing. It, it's such a small, small thing to do, okay? But the reality is you have to weigh it against what are the perceived benefits, the perceived risks, the anticipated, you know, uh, what are the limitations? What are, and so when you take a look at something like diabetes, where the, the adverse outcomes of diabetes are really delayed, 
Okay. You, you can fake it for a long time, but you know, in men, you go blind, you become impotent. By the time that starts, it's really hard to reverse that, but it can go a long time before you get there. But the cost of having to follow your medication history is really hard because if I'm going to take the metformin, then I need to do blood sticks. I need to follow my, I got to eat healthy, you know, stuff like that. And that's expensive, but it's also psychologically expensive. So now we take somebody in a rehab course. Okay. So six years ago, I had my left hip replaced. And, you know, I'd been doing and working with athletes for a long time in the, in the realm of you know, recovery and things, but I had never really been the patient. And, and I always talked about post ACL reconstruction, the hard time sleeping. Well, if you've ever been completely limited on your ability to sleep, and when I had my left hip replaced, it was awful. And, and you couldn't get comfortable for more than two hours at a time. And you were just a zombie all during the day. And I can remember when the, when I was in, when I was in the hospital for a day or two after the surgery, but that's when they kind of kept you in the hospital. Um, I can remember the physical therapist walking down the hall to come get me. And I'm looking at my wife, who's a nurse. And I'm like, can you tell him I'm nauseated? I don't want to go. And here I was, I used to be that guy that would go in and meet with people in that room, in that thing and say, why are we not going? We got to do this. And here I am bargaining with, I don't want to go because the risk of going was pain, hurt, limitations. And it was so much easier just to get that avoidance because whenever we avoid something, we have this immediate relief and relief is a very powerful re uh, reinforcer. The problem is over time, it starts building up regret again and frustration. Well, if, if regret and frustration can go away by missing it again, then all of a sudden I can, I can justify in my head why I don't want to go. And so when you say, I need you to come for six weeks, you know, four times a week to work on X, Y, Z and do some strengthening, but I don't have an immediate relief. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I got other things I got to do today. Yeah. And you know, and that's what happens. And so sometimes we have to understand, and some, some of the things that I have found that have worked in adherence, I call it sandboxing. So when we had kids that were younger, you know, you'd drive around town and you'd say, you know, we drive by a certain fast food agency and they would say, oh, let's go there. The playground, I said, the playground's closed. It's always closed, right? At McDonald's, it's always closed. But they say, well, can we go to the playground? Like, absolutely. So we take them to the playground, but I wouldn't give them the choice of which playground we were going to. I would give them a choice to choose what things they wanted to play on at the playground that I chose. So by doing that, it gives them a sense of control, but only within my domain. And I think a lot of times what we don't do with patients is what do you want to do? But I'm only going to give you so many options, but it gives them the perception of being a partner in the process versus, okay, go over there and do these six exercises that are going to hurt. You're going to be sore. You're not going to see immediate response or relief from it. That relief is going to come in eight weeks. Well, as we're recording this, eight weeks from now is the end of February. Yeah. So do you really want to wait to the end of February to see that result? Not really. Not really. And so that's what happens. Now, adherence rates to medication is less than 60%. My dad was a pharmacist. I probably never took an entire course of antibiotics, despite the fact that he was beating it into the ground. There's only one, or there's only a few drugs that actually have high compliance rates, adherence rates. Viagra, that's how it got started because it was being in, used and studied for something else. And all of a sudden, men were not returning their medicine. <laughs> in the clinical trials, it was being used for hypertension, um, pain medicine, stuff like that. So there's got to be a reward to it. And when you're working behind the scenes and you're building long term, 
we live in a world where we want an immediate return on our investment. And if, if I don't get that immediate return, then guess what? I got something else that's going to give me a short-term feel. And having control of my time, having control of my decisions, yeah, that's pretty good. I, I could do that. You know, that's so interesting because something that's massively supported in the literature is that if we give people a choice about how they do their rehab, whether that is at home on their own or or one-on-one -on -one in person, then they're more likely to stick with it, right? Yeah. So course. if they have a choice, they're more likely to do it. That's so interesting that you brought that up. Now, let me, I tell you what, let's do this. Let me go to lunch with you for the next two weeks. And I'm going to tell you everything you have to eat. <laughs> You're going to find reasons not to go. Yeah. Yeah. Especially that's if I know you don't like a place, but I'm going to teach you to like sushi. Okay. I'm going to take you to eat raw fish if you don't like it. Yeah. I'm going to teach you to do it. No, you're going to find every reason why you can't go. And some of it could just be giving up control that you don't like. Two guys that don't have any issues with self-management are, are Tom Brady and Tiger Woods, right? Two of the greatest athletes of all time. Two guys that also have suffered some pretty serious injuries. They've come back to perform again at the highest level. We know they're dealing with chronic pain. What can we learn from guys, competitors like this that can help us better deal with our injuries and with our pain? So first question I'd ask you, is it worth it? Because we say they both have amazing self-management, but at the result of their self-management, they have, I mean, we've seen the impact on their lives. Okay. You know, both of them have been divorced very high profile lives. And I know the risk of that is high at this world and all that other stuff, but you know, the sacrifices that are taken. Okay. And the continual decisions that we only know a sliver of info on, you know, we don't know all the other sacrifices, shortcuts, hmm. coping mechanisms that have been used over the years of elite athletes. Right. There's a reason why when athletes walk away from their sports, um, and they retire and they have injuries, they struggle because, you know, the cope, the, you know, I, I look at like, let's say my weight. All right. Um, you know, when I used to work out and train, I trained for a purpose. If I do this, I'm going to throw harder. If I do this, I'm going to have a better recovery. I hate to exercise now. Hate it. Like we're, we booked a ski trip yesterday. We're leaving in February. And I'm like, I got to get my legs in shape because the last time I went skiing, I wasn't in shape. It was miserable. Okay. I hate every second of it. I can at least do it because there's a utility associated with it. Um, because I love to snow ski, but I hate to snow ski when I'm out of shape. I love to ski when I'm feeling good and I'm on the mountain and I'm not exhausted after three runs. Um, and so I'm like, okay, that's worth it. I'm going to pay that amount of money to go and spend some time with my wife. I want to ski and enjoy it. But as an athlete, you know, I can remember pitching a game and then all of us going out to dinner and ordering a large pizza a piece. All right. And now all of a sudden that large pizza sits on my stomach. I, it doesn't, I don't run five miles tomorrow to get it off because I don't run five miles for fun. They have cars and transportation for that. Um, I did that because I had to. So you look at that and you say, okay, is it worth it? And those players get to a certain spot where everybody accommodates them for a period of time. And then, Guess what happens in today's world? People move on. The next interest is on to the next one. And so I think what we have to, I think what we have to look at is as athletes, 
those are the greatest outliers in their sports. Tiger's the greatest outlier in the history of golf. There'll never be anybody else like him. Tom Brady, there'll probably never be another person like him, even though he was not uh, heralded as like Tiger was coming up and all the pressure there, he created it. Um, but and I give him a lot of credit. Both of them have revolutionized the way that they take care of their bodies uh, for other, other athletes. If you look at when Tiger Woods came out, I think the average shoe size on the uh, PJ Tour was a nine, nine and a half. Now it's an 11 and a half or 12. Um, and the guys are ripped. I mean, very few overweight players out there. They're, they're fit. They're, they don't look like, you know, European footballers, but they're fit. Um, you know, NFL guys are training year round. Major League Baseball guys train. They take two weeks off and they're back training as soon as the season's over. I think that's what we've learned from those guys. So, but there's a huge sacrifice because what do you do when it's over? Right. I mean, unless you're gifted with like Eli and Peyton Manning's body style, who's pretty skinny and slender, most guys gain a lot of weight when they're done. If you get together with post um, player, you know, alumni weekends, you go back to my team, the BM, our BMIs are always bad. Yeah. Um, and that's just because people don't want to do it. And so I, I would say that self management is tough. Um, but those two guys are obviously great, but there comes a sacrifice to that. In, in rehab, we, we talk about um, the elephant in the room. So the elephant in the room is that lifestyle factors could be a deal breaker for rehab, right? So that yeah. means that you can have the best rehab program. The person could even be doing it pretty diligently, but if they have poor sleep quality, if they have poor nutrition, they don't manage their stress well, they smoke, or they, they drink too much alcohol, they're probably not going to respond very well to rehab, right? Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of people recovering from injury or, or dealing with chronic pain is going to require some lifestyle changes. And that can be tough. What advice do you have for us to help create lifestyle change? Pick the one that gives them the first immediate hit and then start building from that. Right. I think you have somebody who walks in and they're a four, you know, two pack a day smoker and we want to all of a sudden get them to quit smoking while we're making them do other lifestyle changes. Let's be honest. It ain't going to work. Um, if you take a look at like rehabilitative rehab, um, addiction medicine, yeah, a lot it, people who quit smoking during a, uh, alcoholism treatment tend to, they, they do well. Right. But you're asking them to make major changes and it, it's a really hard shot when it comes to behaviors. I think the thing that we need to do one is be non-judgmental. Okay. We're not going to change entire patterns of thinking and behaving because, you know, people are motivated. You know, most people lose weight. Why? They lose weight because either somebody has scared the living hell out of them, all right, and said, look, you're going to die, like die if you don't lose weight. Um, but if there was a pill they could take, they could probably moderate it for a little while. There's an upcoming trip or family reunion or class reunion that they want to look good for. And as soon as they get their genes or feeling more comfortable, they stop because the choices that are made. So the things that I like to do, and I'm not one good talk about this. Like I said, my, my, my biggest sacrifice that happens in my life is my fitness level and my, that, um, but the, the thing that we have to look at is, okay, what's important. You know, like the, the thing is I'm going to go zero to a hundred and I'm gonna make this change. That ain't going to work. You ain't gonna make it because what you're going to do is you're going to quit. It's too hard to get back into it. And then you're going to feel guilty. And then we go to, we go to, um, relief when we feel guilty. And that relief is usually a bad choice. Okay. So I'd rather teach them is like, let's, let's be focused on what's the one thing that we want to make a choice of in the moment. 
So there's a great book called Atomic Habits by James Clear, right? And it talks about building habits around your performance, your life and whatever. And it, it's, it's brilliant because it's the simplicity of his book is so good. It takes all the science that we've known forever and he puts it in a way that the average person can read, which I'm like, okay, that's genius. Uh, um, but one of the keys that is always stuck with me and my uh, players is that if you want to work out, go ahead and put on your workout clothes. Don't lay them out, put them on. Like, I don't like to work out first thing in the morning. I like to work out right around dinner. So like today, I've got my workout clothes on. Because eventually, someday, if I'm going to have to make the choice of I'm not going to wear my workout clothes all day and not exercise, that's a bad choice. If I have a, a after our call, I have appointments scheduled that somebody no shows me or doesn't call in or cancels, I'll go get a 20 minute ride on Peloton. At least I did something. But if I don't have them on, then it's just quick and easy to go. You know what? It's no big deal. And so those are the things to choose. Like if you pack your lunch, you're going to eat a healthier lunch. Okay. Let's not focus on the 40 pound weight loss we need. Let's focus on making the choice of packing our lunch. Let's focus on going to bed without a drink in our hand. Can we go to bed and work and do one time, just one thing today to do the call map as we're laying in bed? Can we read 10 pages of a book? Something like that, that we can start building healthy behaviors that they can do and they can have success and they can feel better because they're doing it. But one thing, and you could look at somebody and go, man, we got a lot to break down. Well, it took a long time to get there. It took a very long time to get there. People who win the lottery. I think I saw a stat that 90 or 85% of people who win the lottery are back to their previous level of income in seven years. Wow. Okay. It came too easy. They didn't value getting it. And it went real easy too. It's the reason why we have an amazing recidivism rate of weight loss. People rebound, they put on more weight because they don't, and then they feel guilty and the amount of work. It's why people, um, you know, relapse is the standard in alcohol treatment. It's not the exception. So you have to prepare for relapse. Don't villainize, don't kick them out. Um, that's why AA has a great process, which is one day at a time, one choice at a time. So those are all the, the factors, right? And so I think that's the way we need to look at it from a rehab standpoint. The other thing too, and, and I'll just say this, is a lot of people who work in the rehabilitative space are fit. They're fitness people. They're people who believe in power of fitness and the health. And so sometimes that can come across as somewhat judgmental. Mm. And what I mean by that is if, you know, every day you were around people who look good, who are fit, and, and you reflect that healthy lifestyle, like it's sometimes cool. You remember when we used to see our teacher at the mall and we'd be like, oh my God, they're normal. Like sometimes it's okay as a rehab person to say, oh my God, I had a bad weekend. Not, oh my God, I had a bad weekend. I had to bite a cake. No, that's not a bad weekend. Oh my God, a bad weekend is, you know, I haven't exercised in two weeks. And just sometimes being honest with that is like, this stuff's hard. Like, but I just make a choice every day. But we, we need to make sure in those spaces, particularly with people who have low confidence, is that we don't pass judgment implicitly. And sometimes we do that, Right. You know, it's like, oh yeah, things are good. Oh, I had a great workout over lunch. I'm like, hmm, okay, that that's nice. Um, you know, that's when I return my phone calls. So it's hard for me to do that. Or I'm not going to get up at five o'clock in the morning to exercise because I'm usually on the phone to 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. So that's hard for me to do that. And so I think, and I'm speaking firsthand here, but it's the same way of like when I was in the re in the charity setting, you know, you'd say, well, 
what is uh, what's healthier, French fries or, or baked potatoes? And, and patients oftentimes would say French fries because they're smaller, ser smaller serving sizes. Hmm. What's more expensive, a, a bunch of veggies or ho-hos? The veggies are more expensive. Yeah. And then how do we cook them? Well, I'm from the South. You know, you start off with some great green beans. You put a ham hock in there, man, they're going to taste good now. <laughs> and add a little scoop of Crisco and you just took some veggies and just completely butchered them. Okay. But in their mind, they're eating healthy, but what they're doing is they're loading them up in an unhealthy way. And so a lot of times it's health literacy and it's teaching them like, you know, moving is take the stairs, park far away, just start there. Let's do that a few times. Um, let's, let's, when you have a good day, let's not go out and weed the entire garden. Let, let's take a, a bite and guild confidence and have them start building self-belief not the alternative, which is all or nothing, because they're going to fail that every time. So baby steps, small building blocks has to be, yeah, has to be, and teach them that you probably aren't going to feel better tomorrow because you did. In fact, you're going to feel probably a little worse now. One of the, oh, and so like one of the things I tell people like with weight loss is like, what do you want to feel when you get up from a table? Because the mind is telling you, you want the bad stuff when you're ordering. It can't see the consequences. But if you can picture yourself getting up from the table, what are you going to feel? And the question is, how are you going to feel in two hours? And that's the, what I try to get them to see is like, where are you going to be? In, well, it's the same thing about people who, you know, who will, let's say, take an extra pain pill. How are you going to feel in two hours? Right. Are you going to feel guilty? Or are you going to feel you know, like you were able to manage it with some self-regulation? And they may say, you know what? I had to take an extra pain pill. Okay. I understand that. I've been there. I've been there. So that's like choosing. I've, I've read this somewhere, choosing between the pain of regret or the, the pain of discipline. Correct. Now here's the thing, right? And so we take a look at discipline and we go back to Tom Brady, Tiger Woods, David Goggins, those guys, right? Jocko Willick, you know, the people who motivate us on social media who are brilliant. Okay. Brilliant. Don't forget. They also get paid for that. All right. And so, yes, what built them has got them there. But what we're seeing is their sustained model of David Goggins makes money by being who he is. And he's done that through the Navy SEALs. I mean, he's, look, I'm not questioning his effort and his intensity, but this is his job now, right? Jocko Willick has a talk, you know, he writes books on discipline. So he lives that. I mean, once you put it out there, then you have to live up to that standard. Right. Um, but those little things that we see, those aren't normal right? Getting up at four o'clock in the morning. I see this in the motivational world. Like I got up at four o'clock in the morning. I get up every day at three twenty. Step. That doesn't, that, that's not realistic. Yeah. You know, what they don't tell you is that they're probably dozing or they, some people are dozing at their desk during the day or, you know, all this other stuff. And, and so I think we always have to be careful of assuming what other people are doing. Like I learned this long time ago in my field, people talking about all the people they work with. And then I found out they don't charge them. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's not work. That's volunteering. That's offering <laughs> a service. That's not, you're not making somebody make a decision. So, you know, it's, it's, yeah. When, when we think about how an injury happens, it's usually because something has been overloaded and, and we typically think of that overload occurring in the physical domain, right? Mm -hmm. Overload can also happen in the social and psychological domain as well. And there's some really interesting research coming out showing how loneliness in particular can increase somebody's pain sensitivity. 
right? And so for the people listening, that means when we feel lonely, we're, we're more likely to feel pain. We have a, a lower pain threshold, which then can increase our anxiety, increase our feelings of uncertainty. Turns up the volume. Yep. Exactly. So for the for people who are listening, who are feeling really down, they're feeling really lonely, they don't know how to get out of it. What advice do you have for them? So that's an interesting study you're talking about, because I remember my one of my advisors in grad school used to talk about how depression is a learned experience doesn't mean that the pain, the, the suffering is not real. But what it is, is when we are depressed, we need somebody it's a learned from the time we're a kid, we cry, people come to our aid, right? And so depression has this very biologically built in adaptive response of I feel bad, I need, I need reinforcement from people around me. Okay, it's not taking away the experience. What he's saying is, we automatically search for somebody outside of us to soothe us when the reality is it needs to come from inside of us. Um, and we have to build that pattern. So when somebody's lonely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you ask somebody like, it's funny, I had the flu two weeks ago during Thanksgiving. And you just when you get done with it, you just want people to listen to how bad it was. Like I found myself telling people like, and I'm like, people don't care. They really in fact, they're going, please, God, don't tell me I don't want to have it too. I mean, it was bad. It sucked. Okay, but you want that validation of what I was going through was realistic, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think when you're lonely, you got to remember um, that you have a lot more to value to you than your suffering. Okay. And there's an old saying, I don't remember who said it. I think it's an, one of those anonymous ones, which is if you feel hopeless, bring hope to another. Okay. And so the point is, is that we, we don't have to have a, com, a competition of how much we suffer, but what we can do is we can always serve or help another that will help in the loneliness thing. I've seen many times individuals who have gone through some heroic or horrific and heroic experiences turn around and go back and volunteer at the places where they were saved. And and it's a, such a cathartic experience. One is because it's a connection to people that, yeah, you've been there, but two, it also serves the server and it serves the server to realize is like, I got out of this and that's where I was. And this is where I'm going. And this is some help. And so I think when you look at it like that, you can, you loneliness is go serve somebody, but don't make your suffering the other thing too that happens, the point of it, the point of emphasis, the, the other thing that happens in, in loneliness, uh, suffering, depression, is that we eventually burn out the helpers. Because what, you know, for instance, you know, somebody in our family is going through a tough time, they keep calling, they keep calling and eventually it's like, I'll answer it later. Because it's, it's exhausting, right? Yeah. And a lot of times those who are suffering don't realize that they're just begging for help, because the level of their hurt is so significant. That's authentic. But at the same time, you know, it's like when, if you walk by somebody and say, how are you doing? They're like, eh, that's a very conditioned response to be like, eh, it's almost awkward if some, if you walk by somebody and say, how are you doing? They're like, oh my God, I have the best day of my life. We're like, I don't know what you're taking, but I hope you have a good <laughs> day. You know, we, we don't assume that they're actually having the best day of their life. We assume that it's like, man, we're supposed to say not good because people can express compassion and empathy. But the reality of the fact is that is a resource that gets burned out very quickly. Everybody listening is a golfer. Do, do you think the challenges that we face in our life, the obstacles that we face can make us better golfers? Is there a parallel? Yeah. I mean, facing a challenge or dealing with the uncertainty. 
I think the, the allure to golf and the thing is, um, the challenge of golf is that it, uh, we, we perceive that we have a lot more control over our environment than we really do. Okay. Golf is a good metaphor for life because you control very little of what you think you do. Golf is like dealing with the weather. There's a climate in the weather. The weather is today's expression. The climate is the overall. A lot of times we use today's weather to select the climate when it needs to be the other way around. I'm having a bad day. Doesn't mean my day sucks. I'm having a bad hour. Doesn't mean my, my experience or my marriage sucks. Okay. We need to look at it as right now I've got some thunderstorms, but it doesn't, you know, like in right now, like in Alabama, the winters are a little unpredictable and wet. It could be 80 degrees like it was Sunday, or it could be 40 like it'll be this upcoming Saturday. We expect volatility, but the summers are amazing. So you just have to understand that right now we're in a little bit of a contentious time. If we get to play golf, great. If we don't, okay. And during the summer, we play a lot in the heat and it's okay, but we're more flexible now. And psychological flexibility is a critical tool for all of us to have. Tell us about your book, Break Free from Suckville. <laughs> so Break Free from Suckville was started because I found that people kept coming in and telling me how much everything sucked. And they just hyper-focused on everything that was a struggle versus seeing the growth that they were taking. And so if you've ever played a video game like Call of Duty, or I don't play video games anymore, I used to a lot, but you know they'd have these things called campaigns, right? And you'd start off and you're this guy in... Germany and World War II and Call of Duty and you got a you got a rifle that doesn't aim very well or shoot very well and that's all you have and you have to progress through the challenge and at the end you're driving tanks and calling in airstrikes right this high level skill well the whole goal of campaign is that you push and you grow and you struggle and then you learn how to overcome and then you push you grow and you struggle and you learn how to overcome and every level has a challenge associated with it that pushes you to the next level and you have to win that challenge. But what happens is you could be at level 30, struggling to climb a mountain and throw a grenade down a, you know, a, a foxhole. And you think you suck because you've hit this challenge that sucks. And what happens is it changes your mindset and changes your lens to seeing everything around you sucks. And it puts you in a very negative frame of mind. But you fail to see that you're on the 30th level and you've flown through the first 29 with no problems. So Suckville is this whole idea that we're so conditioned to see the negative in things that we actually don't see our growth, but we need to emphasize on the growth. We need to see the things that we're doing in our life. We need to see the things that we're growing with so that we can grow to new levels versus assuming that today's struggle is the definition of who we are. And that's what the book's about. And you have a podcast as well. I do. I don't do it as often as I used to. Um, that'll start again here real soon, though. We just built out a a little studio in, in the back of our house and um, wired it up. So we're going to do a lot more video casting, but um, the uh, yeah, it's called secrets to winning. Um, I've got a new thing coming called the uh, mental game live, which is a subscriber based system that will start up in after the first of the year. Um, very, 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 very affordable for anybody who wants to learn about the mental game who can't maybe come see me in person, can't afford to see me in person, doesn't have access that way we can put it out on a platform and, and see it kind of like a show where there's content, there's real life information coming from NFL, NBA, basketball games, why players do this, do that. So some of the secrets that I've been through and experiences. So um, one of the things I want to do in 2023 is, is to increase the access to individuals because uh, 
there aren't a lot of people like me. There are, it's a growing field, but it's not as many of the people who, we, you know, if we were looking at a rehab specialist, there's one on every corner. I mean, you know, in Birmingham, because, you know, it's home of some pretty prominent rehab people. Yeah. I'm the only psychologist I know that works with athletes in this area. So I want to, and nationally, I want to get to where people can see, and that's through the podcast, Mill Game Live, books and stuff like that. Can people work with you online? They can. Um, my my schedule is not as flexible as it used to be, um, just given the, the demands I have on the professional levels. Um, but we have other individuals in our office that see clients and they all do it online. Um, I have one gentleman who's a psychologist who's worked with teams and organizations for many years. He's phenomenal. Um, he is much more, um, he loves one-on-one -on -one stuff. That's what gets him excited every day. I love doing it, but I also end up getting pulled in that. Um, I have another, I have a couple other individuals that see clients all through the mind side. So that's good. And uh, that way we're serving and we're following the same principles that have been very, I've been a very fortunate to work with the players I get to work with and share some of those secrets. So, yeah. And your, your website and your Instagram. Yep. It's all brettmccabe.com. That's spelled B-H-R-E-T-T-M-C-C-A-B-E. And then if you go to my Instagram or Twitter, it's at Dr. Brett McCabe. Um, and I'm active on all of them, even TikTok. Um, all my old talks are on TikTok. Um, anything that we didn't have to sign away, um, we've split them up and cut them up. And my team does an amazing job of cutting a video right at the most controversial moment and then me getting bombarded with comments. So um, I, I'm, I'm thankful for them to do that. Um, but uh, yeah, so, you know, that's those are some of the things we're going to do this year. I, I want to get that out. I mean, I like I said, I, I've been... We didn't talk about it, but, you know, I've worked for Coach Saban for 10 years. I've played for a coach that won five titles in 10 years. I've been around the two best to ever play their sport, to coach their sport. I've been around, you know, had multiple number one, uh, number one players in the world in golf um, at every level. And, you know, I just kind of want to bring those secrets to people. And my Alabama basketball team just beat two number ones this year already before Christmas. So I um, love seeing that and seeing the players do well so some of those secrets that i get to be around some of those great coaches not because of me it's because i'm around some great coaches well i appreciate you coming on brad i i know everybody listening appreciates it as well thank you very much thank you very much that was awesome thank you